Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 66, the book of Matthew, chapter 19, continued. We're going to cover some tough subjects today. Marriage, divorce, polygamy, versus monogamy and celibacy. These were all important issues in Yeshua's time. And they, of course, remain so in our modern era. Now, while polygamy in the Western developed world is found only in know, kind of smallish and offbeat remnants of our societies, and so it's really even a topic of discussion um, in the church or even within secular governments, in the first century, it was still a somewhat unsettled part of the marriage discussion among Jews. And as I showed you last week, the Pharisees generally allowed for polygamy, even though its practice only occurred sporadically within a small fraction of the Jewish population, and interestingly, was something that was nearly exclusive to the Holy Land Jews. All right, there, there's no evidence that it was practiced in the uh, Jewish diaspora, no doubt, because of the heavy-handed Roman influence that was anti-polygamy. Therefore, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find Yeshua planting, or perhaps replanting, a stake in the ground for monogamy as God's marriage standard. Now, He did this when in verse 3, of Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees who accepted polygamy asked him a question about divorce. And the question was not if divorce was, was legal or acceptable to God. And since it was the Pharisees asking this question, they were thinking in terms of Jewish law, halakha. But rather, see, the question revolved around what the proper grounds. For divorce are. And Christ answers by taking the tact that the issue was settled at creation, long before there was such a thing as a Hebrew race, a law of Moses, or Halakha, at the moment when God formed the first man and first woman as the first couple. And He combined with that God's command in the Genesis account that a man and a woman are to leave their parents, become one flesh, and remain that way their entire lives. Now, it's not directly said, but Jesus' instruction clearly imputes monogamy among humans, since it's illogical that one male and two or more females could unite and become one flesh. That is. In order to satisfy the command to become one flesh, would mean that not only the male becomes one flesh with two or more women, but also the two or more women become one flesh with one another. From a God standpoint of marriage, being a, a, a uniting of male and female that creates one flesh, such a polygamous marriage is an oxymoron. Therefore, the practice of polygamy is wrong. 
and probably can't even be technically thought of as true and pure marriage, even though throughout history, among the Hebrews, it's clear God tolerated it, just as He tolerated divorce. Now, although I made this point last week, it's too important in our day and age to not address not address it again for, for God's people of the 21st century. There was no such thing as gay marriage within Jewish society in Yeshua's era. It did not exist. There were in ancient times some rare, ritualistic, informal, same-sex unions that occurred, usually private and hidden, and always with perverted and demented people such as Nero, who thought themselves as gods or demigods, who didn't have to play within the normal bounds of humanity. But these so-called marriages did not occur within the religious realm. At least so far as my research has shown. Such a thing wasn't contemplated within any societal norm because marriage was something that was handled exclusively in the religious realm, and because perhaps the primary purpose of marriage was to produce offspring, both for the purpose of the family economy and to carry on the family name. So when we look at the Jewish faith, of course the uniting of two men or two women in marriage wasn't anywhere on their radar, uh, nor do we ever read of such a thing in the Bible or even extra-biblical Jewish documents. Such a publicly recognized concept as legitimized gay marriage is only a late 20th century phenomenon. And even that is generally only in the bubble of Western culture. So to make myself clear, God teaches in His Word, Jesus affirms, and Seed of Abraham Ministries obeys and firmly advocates that marriage is an institution of a union between one man and one woman. Now, of course, such a thing as gay marriage didn't originate within the church. It came about because civil governments have intervened and taken marriage out of its formerly exclusive religious realm, and they've put it into the secular civil law realm. In other words, in the West, marriage was stolen away, and it was put into the political sphere of control. And thus politicians can now define and redefine marriage at their will and for their own political benefit. Now, in response to what all believers ought to see as an outrage, inexplicably some Christian denominations have actually taken it upon themselves to accept and embrace the civil and political concept of gay marriage to retool the holy concept of marriage, to add to it an aura of heavenly legitimacy, and to bring it into the body of Christ as acceptable, if not admirable. 
large denominations, such as the Presbyterians and the Methodists, have adopted gay marriage. These are not the only ones to do so. It's resulted in that part of those denominations and others having to split off from the main body, further fracturing an already fragmented Christian church to maintain the sanctity of marriage as the God-ordained platform of one man united with one woman. Now make no mistake, marriage has become Satan's playground in a way that no Jew could have imagined in Christ's era. Even though it was Satan's playground then, it expressed itself in different ways, such as through rampant divorce and the acceptance of polygamy, even though as with gay marriage today, polygamy only happened infrequently in Jewish society as compared to the norm of monogamy. Now we get to the matter of divorce. And before we talk about that, let's reread a portion of Matthew 19. So open your Bibles to Matthew 19. We're going to read the first 12 verses again. Matthew 19, the first 12 verses. When Yeshua had finished talking about these things, he left the Galilee, traveled down the east side of the Jordan River, till he passed the border of Judah, Judea. Great crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Parshim, Pharisees, came and tried to trap him by asking, Is it permitted for a man to divorce his wife on any ground whatsoever? He replied, Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and that He said, For this reason a man should leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two are to become one flesh. Thus they are no longer two but one. So then no one should split apart what God has joined together. And they said to Him, Well then why did Moshe, Moses, give the commandment that a man should hand his wife a get and divorce her? And he answered, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts are so hardened. But this is not how it was at the beginning. Now what I say to you is that whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the Talmudim, the disciples said to him, Well, if that's how things are between husband and wife, it would be better not to marry. And he said to them, Not everyone grasps this teaching, only those for whom it's meant. For there are different reasons why men do not marry, some because they were born without the desire, some because they have been castrated, some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can grasp this, let him do so. <clears throat> Christ does not disagree with the Pharisees that divorce is legal, both from a Biblical and a Jewish tradition standpoint, and that a bill of divorce, a get, to protect the woman and the children is to be part of that sad procedure. However, 
Yeshua explains that because of how it was at the beginning, between a man and a woman, meaning at creation, then there is only one acceptable grounds for divorce, marital unfaithfulness. Now in the Greek manuscripts, the, the word for this kind of unfaithfulness is porneia, porneia, and it literally means illicit sexual activity outside the sanctity of the marriage union. Now interestingly, the word was also used as a metaphor within the Jewish community for worshiping idols, because to worship idols is to be unfaithful in the union between the Hebrew people and God. However, we find that some Hebrew religious leaders early on in Hebrew and Israelite history redefined this marital unfaithfulness to extend beyond only actual illicit sexual activity, adultery, and into the realm of women not pleasing her husband in some manner. And the source of this displeasure, well that was left up to the husband. Therefore in the first century and earlier Jewish society, divorce could only be enacted by the husband and for nearly any reason that he claimed. This was more or less the way the Pharisees and therefore the synagogue taught about divorce. Thus divorce had become quite the frivolous thing in parts of Jewish society. It was thought that fornication outside of marriage was the lesser sin than adultery, so very often it was merely a man divorcing his wife only briefly, so he could have a fling with another woman only then to remarry the wife he had divorced in a few weeks. So as we ponder all that Christ had to say to His twelve Jewish disciples about marriage, divorce, and monogamy, keep all this background in mind. This is one of those Bible passages that I spoke about last week in which there is disagreement between Matthew and Mark. In Mark 10 verse 12 we read, And if a wife divorces her husband and marries another man, she too commits adultery. So here, you see, Mark speaks of a wife initiating a divorce. A wife divorcing her husband was simply not part of normal Jewish culture in the first century. I suspect that we find such a concept in Mark because his gospel was written for a Gentile audience, while Matthew's gospel was intended for a Jewish audience. Therefore, Matthew sets the scene as Yeshua attempting to reset the guidelines for divorce to what was God-ordained, and as he put it, from the beginning, at the time of creation. Now this would have not only upset the Pharisees, although we don't read of any response from them, it had a pretty unnerving effect on His twelve disciples. So here's two things to take from this. First, 
I've been describing the context and the cultural backdrop from which this question of divorce was asked of Yeshua, therefore the context of His response. Second, no matter how we in the 21st century might attempt to turn it to our favor, sexual infidelity, adultery is the only acceptable grounds, according to Christ, for divorce. It is true that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 adds a second legitimate reason for divorce as abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Therefore, it is a great sin to divorce for any other reason. That said, forgiveness and restoration are possible for those who divorce for other reasons, at least for those who trust in Christ, and sincerely repent. So how about the woman? that divorces her husband due to his violent physical abuse. Nothing like this is contemplated in the Bible. So what I'm about to tell you is only my opinion. It's not a command of God. We live in a fallen, ever-darkening world. Violent domestic abuse ought not to exist, but it does. In God's Word, we find that the value of life trumps nearly everything. Even in the Sabbath observance, uh, observance commandment, we find in both Old and New Testaments examples of a person working to save a life on the Sabbath as the right thing to do, even the life of an animal. Thus, for me, if a wife is being violently abused and has to leave her husband to literally save her own life and very likely that of her children as well, it's warranted. I've heard too many stories of Christian women staying with their physically abusive husbands thinking it's their duty in order to please God. Or even of some pastors, counseling wives to remain in physically abusive marriages, otherwise they become great sinners. Certainly God hates divorce, no matter the cause, but that doesn't mean He hates the divorcee. He laid down rules to deal with the very thing He hates, and this because He, better than anyone, understands humanity's fallen nature and the terrible consequences it produces. So out of His great mercy, under very narrow circumstances, He permits a way out. The bigger problem lies in that, as with the Pharisaical traditions, almost any kind of unhappiness between spouses became the grounds for divorce. Today the term to make divorce easy is irreconcilable differences. I'm going to say it loud and clear. Irreconcilable differences, whatever those differences might be, may be a civil legal reason acceptable 
to secular society, but it is not a fine reason for, below, for believers to divorce. With that said, we have a much more complex society today that in no way operates as it was in biblical times. The way our family economies work is very different. The way people are cared for is very different. This doesn't excuse the sin of divorce outside of the reason Christ gave and perhaps the one that Paul gave. And yet divorce is not and does not have to be the end. The end of our relationship with God. Let's move on to celibacy and singleness. <clears throat> Christ's disciples respond to his teaching on divorce and monogamy in verse 10 by essentially saying that to play within those rules makes marriage too hard because it makes divorce too hard. And the disciples' response frankly exposes them as the spiritual infants that they remain to be. But also it highlights the attitude about marriage and divorce of the male segment of Jewish society in general. The disciples completely contort Yeshua's instruction to make it as though His exhortation of monogamy is a promotion of singleness and celibacy. Because every one of the disciples you see is a product of the synagogue, and therefore of the traditions of the Pharisees. So then they hold to a view that as a result of Yeshua's new teaching, that a lifetime of commitment to only one woman is just more trouble than it's worth. And it opens oneself up to sinning in more serious ways than if they just didn't marry at all. To that, Jesus responds in a rather understanding way. He says, you know, not everyone grasps this teaching, only those for whom it's meant. Now I suspect he displays an acceptance to the disciples' attitude on marriage versus singleness because he himself has chosen to remain unmarried and celibate. But we must take his meaning in the light of what comes next when he talks about reasons that men may indeed rightly choose to remain single. Men had as much responsibility to be fruitful and multiply as did women. And he speaks about this subject using the term eunuch in three different cases. This is somewhat hidden in the complete Jewish Bible. See, the Greek word for English eunuch is eunuchos. It means castrated males or abstinence celibacy, by choice. The fundamental sense of the word is that for whatever reason, a male isn't able to or chooses not to have sexual intimacy with a wife. And it, is also, it also includes the sense that he cannot or will not help to produce children. 
Now the, the uh, King James Version has it translated the most literally. It's a much better translation. In Matthew 19.12, For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So we find in this difficult verse three types of eunuchs. Each meaning was well understood in first century Jewish society. The first type of eunuch is in Hebrew, Saris Hama, Saris Hama, which in the literal sense is eunuch of the sun. What it means as a phrase is from the first seeing of the sun. In other words, since birth. So this means that something is either wrong with the male's reproductive system that was thought to have been from birth, going so far as to not even having been born with the proper genitalia. In modern times, very often such medical issues can be resolved. In those days it couldn't. The second type of eunuch in Hebrew is a Saris Adam. It literally means eunuch of man. In other words, this is a male who's been castrated by another male. This type also could include a male that had a medical issue that occurred later in life, or even as a case of having his genitals damaged in an accident or in a battle so that reproduction wasn't possible any longer. The third type of eunuch actually doesn't have a specific Hebrew word or phrase for it, at least no one I, not one that I know anything about. But rather, it's only described. It's a man who has a fully functional reproduction system and normal desires, yet, for religious reasons, he chooses to remain celibate and therefore not to marry. In the case of believers that Christ is talking about, they, like he, are doing it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to be clear. This is not about being extra pure. It's about making a personal sacrifice in order to be devoted full time to do a work or a ministry in which it would be unfair to a wife. Perhaps it involves being per permanently itinerant. Maybe there's a severe element of danger involved, or is going to be so time consuming that the proper demands of marriage and family just can't be met. Yet these men are so committed to something greater than their own normal and healthy personal needs and desires that they are willing to forego them, that they might obtain a different kind of joy from serving God and His Kingdom. Now what Christ is saying, and I'll use Christianese, is that such a decision must be a special divine calling. This is those who he says can grasp this. The word grasp sort of misses the point. A better English word, I think, is just accept. 
accepted, in the sense of being prepared by the Holy Spirit to accept and act on behalf of the Kingdom as a calling and a purpose of life by choosing to be single for the reason of any of these three types of eunuchs. So from the viewpoint of the disciples' rather poor response to Yeshua's teaching on marriage and divorce as a devotion to one woman for a lifetime, and their reply that it's easier to remain single, Yeshua is saying no to that thought. No. In fact, He's saying that to be like Him, single by choice, like that third type of eunuch, is the harder choice than marital fidelity to one woman. See, celibacy and singleness is a good choice, but in no way is it somehow better than a choice of marriage. It's a choice only for some. It must be based on a divine calling. Few men ought to make it. And Paul tells us why. Few men are mentally and emotionally equipped to make that choice and stick with it. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9, Paul says, Actually, I wish everyone were like me. But each has his own gift from God, one this, another that. Now to the single people and the widows I say that it is fine if they remain unmarried like me. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should get married. Because it's better to get married than to keep burning with sexual desire. So yes, choosing to remain single brings with it its own set of challenges and temptations that includes a possibility of committing a sex sin of a different nature than the kind that marriage brings with it. Bottom line, marriage and singleness are equally valid and good in God's eyes. It's a personal choice. Well, verse 13 shifts gears. Some children were brought to Yeshua so that He might lay hands on them and pray over them. What this is really getting at, in a roundabout way, is to lay hands on them and pronounce a blessing over them. But the twelve disciples are still off on the wrong track, almost seem to have forgotten what their Master has just taught them about showing respect for little children. Remembering their value to God, even displaying the kind of humility that small children display. So when the children come, the disciples try to shoo them away, and Christ again rebukes them for it. Let's reread the remainder of Matthew chapter 19. Open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 19. We'll read verse 13 to the end. Verse 13 to the end. Then children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked the people, bringing them. However, Yeshua said, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then, after laying hands on them, he went on his way. A man approached Yeshua and said, Rabbi, what good thing should I do in order to have eternal life? And he said to him, 
Why are you asking me about good? There is one who is good. But if you want to obtain eternal life, observe the mitzvot, observe the commandments. And the man asked, Which ones? And Yeshua said, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, Well, I've kept all these. Where do I fall short? And Yeshua said to him, If you are serious about reaching the goal, go and sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he was wealthy. Then Yeshua said to his Talmudim, Yes, I tell you, it will be very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, I tell you that it's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the Talmudim heard this, they were utterly amazed. Well, then who, they asked, can be saved? And Yeshua looked at them and said, Humanly, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Kepha, Peter, replied, Look, we've left everything and followed you. So what will we have? And Yeshua said to them, Yes, I tell you, that in the regenerated world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Anyone, everyone, who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times more, and he will obtain eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. <clears throat> you know, before we get too tough on these twelve disciples, remember these were men. Especially in this era, children were the responsibility of women. Men usually didn't have much to do with children until they neared the age of adulthood. 13-ish. If the disciples had been women, this lesson about children would never have had to have been taught, since women tend to be nurturers of children. Now, for the disciples, the children didn't even belong around them in Jesus, as they discussed important adult matters. But Christ challenged their view with something that just wasn't the norm for the Middle East. It's interesting to me that Mark characterizes the ritual of Christ laying hands on the children and blessing them as this in Mark 10:13. People were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those people that he might touch them. See, this tells me Mark didn't really even understand this Jewish ritual tradition. Because Obviously, the issue is not that people wanted Jesus to just touch their children, it's that He would bless them in the customary Jewish way. Now, interestingly enough, verses 13 and 14 have been used by Catholic and other Christian denominations as one of the basis uh, that they use for infant baptism. I find that a rather major stretch. This passage not only has nothing to do with immersion, it doesn't have anything to do with infants. 
So what did Christ mean in verse 14 when He said that the Kingdom of Heaven belongs to such as these, referring to the little children? Mark adds in Mark 10.15, Yes, I tell you, whoever does not receive the Kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. This has puzzled many Bible scholars. My opinion is that this refers back to chapter 18 about the disciples' argument over who's greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus used some little children to teach and answer the disciples' question. The point's this In the kingdom, earthly ways are going to be reversed. In the kingdom, the greatest will be the least, and the least will become the greatest. The greatest and the least are referring to social status, usually attained through material wealth or family name, since wealth and family name were perhaps the primary determiners of status. And since the little children held the least status, and yet they're humble, they also make for a good metaphor to explain not just who gets into the Kingdom of Heaven, by, but also by what standard does one attain Kingdom societal status. Those who will hold the greatest social status in the Kingdom of Heaven will be the most humble. Those who hold the least social status in the Kingdom of Heaven will be the least humble. Money and family names simply won't matter. This lesson about status reversal continues now. Status reversal, keep that in mind, it continues with the story of the rich man who wants eternal life. Verse 16 begins with the words, A man approached Yeshua. Now we don't learn until later that this was a rich man. So he held a great social status. It's good to remember that wealth, status, and the Kingdom of Heaven were the central themes to the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, what happens concerning this rich man, you see, is an actual case example of a remark from Yeshua that he taught during that sermon which we find back in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, 24. No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. See the connection? Further, we cannot help but see <clears throat> that Jesus goes on to use the Ten Commandments which is the preamble to the Law of Moses, if you would, <clears throat> as a way to continue highlighting the central importance and relevance of the Torah and our obedience to it. And as a good observant Jew, the rich man wanted to know what good thing, meaning what good deed, or in Hebrew what mitzvah, that he ought to do so he could get eternal life. I find it interesting 
not so much is the query itself about what the particular thing he should do, but rather with the goal of it in his mind. What was his goal? What did he want? Eternal life. We simply don't find the words eternal life in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The only place we find that thought is in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the first time we hear of it is in the previous chapter of Matthew. And since there was no New Testament yet, how are we to take what the rich man was, was thinking? What was he picturing when he said he seeks eternal life by doing some type of good work? Therefore, whoever this fellow was, he had to have been part of the crowd over in the Galilee who had heard Jesus use this term, eternal life, that we find back in Matthew 18.8. And this man was so taken by Christ's teaching that he followed Jesus all the way to the border of Judea. Matthew 18.8 said, So if your hand or foot becomes a snare for you, cut it off, throw it away, better that you should be maimed or crippled and obtain eternal life than keep both hands or both feet and be thrown into an everlasting fire. I imagine that that rich man didn't really know what eternal life meant, because those words were, were, were new with Yeshua. But it sure sounded like something anybody would want. Does eternal life mean that a person lives forever in their current bodies and therefore in their current social status? Or is it that some essence of themselves lives on forever? Is it reincarnation? Where do you live eternally? See, it was common in that era, less so among Jews, to be buried with some of their wealth in hopes of it aiding in them and having a pleasant afterlife. Of course, whether there even was an afterlife was an unsettled matter, and it provided a never-ending debate topic among Jewish intellectuals. Jesus threw everyone a curveball with this eternal life thing. And I don't, I kind of doubt anyone knew what he meant by it. Now, since for Jesus' Jewish listeners, the kingdom of heaven was thought of as a concrete, tangible, earthly kingdom that the Jews would live in, mainly as a restored and exalted Israel, I have no doubt that this young rich man figured he'd just be taking his wealth and social advantages with him. So for him the issue was, what's the good thing he needed to perform for access to the kingdom so that he could continue his wealthy life forever? Now although in the complete Jewish Bible, the rich man walks up to Yeshua and calls him Rabbi, and other versions it calls him Teacher. Either way, the point is that this rich man sees Christ as a very wise teacher, not a Savior, not a Messiah. Yeshua sort of chastises the man. 
when he says, why are you asking me about good? There's only one that's good. I can't imagine that Jesus didn't understand the intent of that man's question. The obvious subject is good deeds, not the source of goodness, which Yeshua says is God. So various scholars have various ideas about what Christ was getting at with that remark. For me, it's kind of a head-scratcher. I really don't want to speculate because I'm not sure how it adds to the teaching, but what comes next? Oh, that throws the mother of all monkey wrenches into what is a nearly universal Christian doctrine. Yeshua says to the rich man, if you want to obtain eternal life, what does he say you have to do? Obey the commandments. Uh-oh. Obviously, he means the Ten Commandments. I mean, whoa! Christian doctrine is that we pray the sinner's prayer, then we give our lives, rather we go live our lives without much regard to anything that comes before the New Testament. Now, since the rich man knows there are many commandments, not just ten, he asks the rather absurd question, well, which ones? As though only some of the commandments really mattered. Yeshua comes back with, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and honor your parents. Now, <clears throat> I need to pause to tell you something that is just a pet peeve of mine, to the point of distraction. Because I find the same or similar comments in so many Christian commentaries on this passage. Now I'm going to quote to you directly from what Ben Witherington III said as representative of the concept, same kind of concept, so many other commentators also profess. Listen to this. Jesus lists some of the commandments, prohibitions against murder, adultery, theft, and false testimony, and on the positive side, honoring one's parents and loving one's neighbor as oneself. It is significant, perhaps, that what he does not list, he does not list the Sabbath commandment. This deliberate omission may reflect Jesus' view that keeping a particular day as the Sabbath was no longer obligatory. What? I hope you heard that. See, long ago I would have found such a thought as bizarre, certainly not widespread, but it's all too common among academic Christian commentators. It simply doesn't matter what the New Testament says. Their conclusion is Jesus abolished the Torah and the Law of Moses and everything else prior to that little white page we have between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bible, including, of course, the dreaded Sabbath. Because that is 1,800-year-old Roman church doctrine. The reflection of deep-seated Christian traditions that are so steeped in anti-Semitism that the typical academic or even layperson is blinded to their own prejudice causes these otherwise intelligent people to at times say the most outlandish forehead-slapping things.
So in other words, let me tell you what he's what this amounts to. If Christ didn't utter every single commandment in the Torah to the rich man, he must have intended to communicate that the Sabbath was abolished. Jesus also didn't say to the rich man the commandment that we're not to worship other gods. Well, I guess Professor Wilf, by Professor Witherington's logic, that can only mean that Yeshua just gave his approval for worshiping other gods. He also didn't quote God's commandment that we're not to make graven images, nor are we to take God's name in vain. Well, good news. Jesus says now we can swear like sailors. We can make all the wooden, little wooden idols we want to. See, stop and think for a minute. What do you see? What did in this as the common theme? behind all the commandments that Yeshua did list. It is that these all involve human-to-human -human relationships. Loving your neighbor. All of them. Sometimes called the second tablet. But what it doesn't do is speak of human-to-God relationships, sometimes called the first tablet. These are the commandments that are about loving our fellow man. The Sabbath is about our relationship with God. The rich man asked about good deeds, good works. So, Yeshua responded with a list of good deeds, good works, taken directly from the Torah and the Law of Moses. The rich man replies, that he already obeys those commandments, at least he must think he does. So where might he fall short of doing enough to obtain eternal life, he asks. Yeshua says, well, if you're really serious, then this rich man should sell all of his wealth and distribute it among the poor. It is an exchange, you see, of riches on earth for riches in heaven. Well, after that, the rich man should Follow Christ. But when the rich man heard this, he became sad, he turned and he walked away. See, to best understand what happened here, we must keep in mind that the issue revolved around good deeds as the key to eternal life, whatever eternal life meant to the rich man. Good deeds and obeying the Law of Moses were seen as the measurements of a person's righteousness. And since doing good deeds was the standard that the rich man was assuming was needed for membership in the kingdom, then Yeshua says, essentially, that if the good man wanted to enter by that means and standard, he had to be perfect in those good deeds by divesting himself of all earthly treasure, distributing it to the poor, and this was something the rich man was not prepared to do. Well, we'll finish up this teaching in the remainder of chapter 19 next time and begin chapter 20.